Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is Episode 9, Preparations. In the last episode, I devoted the entire presentation to the rise and actions of the communist in China. We learned about the initiation and growth of the communist Red Army. We also learned about the iconic long march by the communist, retreating from the ever-tightening noose of the nationalist forces, eventually ending their hostilities but not before the dramatic Xi'an incident in 1936 and cooperation between the communists and the nationalists forming the second united front to challenge and check the Japanese. In this episode, I want to discuss generally the decade of the Nanjing government from 1927 to 1937. These are the situations and conditions apart from the issues and fights against the communists that I have already covered. In the last half of this episode, I want to talk about the same time frame, but as it relates to China's issues with Japan. Both of these discussions are necessary for the segue into the calamitous events of the Japanese War, World War II, and the continuation of the Chinese Civil War. I will also, at the end of this episode, briefly share an anecdote involving the beleaguered former Manchu Emperor Puyi. The Nanjing government decade is difficult to assess. It is ambiguous as to whether it was benefit to China or the opposite. Did China benefit from the regime? Did it harm China? My opinion is it was neither. It was just what it was. In its 10-year run, which is not really long enough to fairly assess it, five years of it were used to secure its power. Probably any government would have had difficulty under the same circumstances. I say that in defense of the regime. For whatever it could be argued, it accomplished or failed. But let me try to itemize the regime's accomplishments and account for its failures. It could be said the Guimindang did establish a sound system of governing that they laid a foundation for a strong and prosperous nation. But that government had to be aborted because of the war with Japan. It could also be said the Nanjing government was corrupt and inefficient. That it was either unaware or naive of the myriad of problems the nation faced. 
That opinion holds that the nationalists would have failed even without the war with Japan. Whatever your opinion may be, I think you have to consider the following. For several generations before the nationalists came to power, China had been chaotic and was disintegrating. That alone posed perhaps insurmountable challenges to any government. The nationalists then really only had five years to focus on the problems. Five years is not long enough. The problems facing China at that time were formidable. A poor economy, foreign invasions and occupations, and civil strife. All of these strongly militated against any immediate reforms. Keep in mind those problems were not all the fault of the regime, and in some cases beyond the nationalists' control. When it came to power in 1927, it only really controlled a handful of regions. Chiang Kai-shek can be credited with having a vision and strategy for China. He strongly believed that before his government could meaningfully resist the Japanese aggression, the communists had to be annihilated. He famously quipped that the Japanese were a disease of the skin, but the communists were a disease of the heart. That, in my opinion, perfectly exemplifies why he took the direction he did. We can go back to 1930. By then, the communists had taken on growing significance. So much so that by 1934, Chiang Kai-shek had used that significance to swell the Guomindang army. He used German and Japanese military advisors, so he was serious in his efforts to stamp out the communists. The military pressure on the communists, of course, led to the Long March in 1934. From the nationalist viewpoint, the Long March allowed the Guomindang to finally infiltrate their military and political strength into the south and west portions of China, once the communists had left. Those provinces tolerated the nationalists better than they had the communists. However, it was probably a case of the lesser of two evils. Chiang Kai-shek exploited the opportunity left by the communists. He could finally bring those provinces under Nanjing's control and subjugate the last of the warlords in those locations. It would be, of course, a Herculean task to civilize and modernize those areas. On a whole, reliable estimates show that the Nanjing government grew industrial production in the regions it controlled at about a 6 to 7% annual clip from 1931 to the start of the war with Japan. And those would be, those numbers are exclusive of Manchuria. Electric power production also grew, more than doubling during the decade of the nationalist control. So did bank deposits. Sure, of course. It's relative. The growth 
in those areas was virtually from nothing. So any growth would seem bigger in that perspective. Though considering the global economic depression that dominated much of the 1930s and Japanese aggression and the nationalist civil war with the communists, it is remarkable the Nanjing decade saw any increase. After Chiang Kai-shek defeated the last vestiges of the warlords in 1936, that was perhaps his greatest moment to date. He proved he was more than a marauding militarist, but he was also a statesman. Bringing in the formerly communist-occupied provinces into national control had been accomplished for the first time since 1916. His greatest moment coincided with the imminent marginalization of the communist. His status was propelled and the Chinese mood optimistic. Chiang Kai-shek and China were then fully aligned in their desire to resist the Japanese. On July 13, 1936, Chiang Kai-shek declared that China would no longer make concessions with Japan. He would resist Japan at all costs. By October of 1936, the nation's mood had turned positive and a flood of patriotism and confidence covered China. Chiang Kai-shek was the primary beneficiary of this enthusiasm, and for the first time, he was a popular and esteemed leader. The one hiccup, of course, was the Xi'an incident. In late 1936, the incident exposed Chiang Kai-shek's passionate dislike of the communist. Up to that incident, he thought he could annihilate them for good. The incident however, also heightened his popularity. The incident finally solidified the country's direction away from the communist and toward the Japanese. Okay, just a few moments on a final assessment of the Nanjing government. I want to be thorough. As I already stated, 10 years is not enough to fairly assess the Nanjing government. Also, As I previously mentioned, 10 years is not enough to implement laws and systems to reverse the awful political and economic disintegration and and national humiliation that had occurred for over a century. Politically, the Nanjing government was run by and for the military because it was not connected to the citizens. It sat on top of them rather than aside or beneath them. It can be viewed as a military dictatorship. I want to say this before I finally move on here. It is ironic that the government that sprang from the Guomindang, which was the party of Dr. Sun Yat-sen, himself a mentor to Chiang Kai-shek, came to be what it was by the end of 1937. Remember, Sun Yat-sen tried to institute a liberal Republican constitutional government. Chiang Kai-shek's government was certainly not that. As I alluded to before, 
for a while after the Mukden incident, there was a chance that the international community would try to rein in the Japanese juggernaut. As we, do, as we learned, despite some immediate remonstrations from the world community, nothing substantive came from it. The fact of the matter was Japan was just too strong militarily. Any real effort to resist Japanese aggression or push her out of Manchuria would be long and costly. And Japan knew that and used that as leverage. With the old notion of internationalism long dead, Japan immediately after the Mukden incident began diplomatic efforts to solidify its position. They tried to sell the world on the new reality. That new reality was that Manchuria belonged to Japan and it was beneficial for both Japan and China. A win-win. At least that is how Japan sold it to China and the rest of the world. Japan would forego further expansion and remain on friendly terms with the international community if each would recognize the new reality that Manchuria belonged to Japan. That was similar to the same terms Adolf Hitler was offering in his actions with certain European nations. For a couple of years following the Mukden incident, it seemed all the sometimes disparate groups in Japan were aligned with each other. They were solidified on Manchuria and not necessarily interested in further imperial expansion into China. It would seem for a brief time the Nanjing government was willing to partially acquiesce to the new realities. That probably had more to do with the reality of the international mood at the time rather than a sincere belief that acquiescence was in China's best interest. The lack of firm reproach or punitive actions by the international community following the Mukden incident may have been the reason for China's seemingly conciliatory attitude. It would all become moot, however. By 1935, the Japanese policy reversed. Not surprising, it was the Japanese military that determined to expand the empire further south into China from Manchuria. The Japanese military was never content with the Japanese civil government's decision to seek out international cooperation. To the Japanese militarist, China's conciliatory gestures were not sincere and, furthermore, exposed the weakness of the Chinese leaders. They wanted to strike deep into Chinese territory, strike while they could before they could not. The Japanese military had been working on a plan for further expansion. The aim was to invade and control the northern Chinese provinces, divide and separate 
these areas from the rest of China and draw those areas into Manchuria's orbit. One wonders, at least I know I do, why Tokyo could or would not forcibly suppress these aggressive plans from its rogue military. England tried to intervene. She had a plan that, if accepted, might have averted war between China and Japan. The Japanese, however, outright rejected the offer. The Japanese military was far too powerful and assertive in their jingoistic and bellicose demands and plans. From their viewpoint, any plan to cooperate with the international community would only weaken Japan and strengthen the Nanjing government. The civilian government in Tokyo failed politically and diplomatically. By 1935, already the Japanese efforts in the northern provinces were fueling large-scale protests in Peking. The Xi'an incident in 1936 and the formation of the Second United Front between the Guomindang and the Communists convinced Japan that time was running out. With the recent revival of internationalism, Japan felt more isolated. It, it had become a bigger outsider than Germany. In mid-1937, the new civilian government in Tokyo installed a new foreign minister to try and restore Japan's international reputation. It seemed the mood had shifted again in Japan, That this time to take decisive action to avoid a war with China. Those hopes were dashed when in July of 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident would permanently destroy any chance to avoid war. I promised a tiny anecdote about the dethroned and beleaguered former Qing Emperor Isengerlo Puyi. In March of 1932, the Japanese installed Puyi as the president of Manchukuo, or Manchuria, and later as its emperor in 1934. Japan was trying to prove to the world its good intentions and its legitimacy in Manchuria. Outwardly, Puyi appeared to be in charge. The reality, however, was much different. He had allegedly secretly signed papers transferring all power in Manchukuo to the Japanese Imperial Army. Puyi held the emperor position until near the end of World War II. In the next episode, I begin the discussion of the Sino-Japanese War. An eight-year slog and horror show. It would be foreshadowing and overlap the World War that gripped the globe in the 1940s. That and more. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.